The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. There was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Loving and gracious God, we give you thanks for your presence in this moment, in in our lives, and in our world. And we pray that that presence will work in our minds and our hearts and our souls that we can hear your word for us. Amen. So this morning, our text comes out of the, like the second half of Luke 4, where Jesus is finishing up his, like his first big public speech. And last week, Father Matt and I, as I mentioned, we exchanged pulpits And we both preached on the first half of Jesus' speech and on the theme of justice. And this is sort of a a perfect text to talk about justice because Jesus is introducing himself by, by saying that he's come to bring good news to the poor, to heal the sick, to free the captives, and to liberate the oppressed. Like, for for people who care about justice, this is good news. And it's also a challenge when our church is, what, like two miles from the Northwest Detention Center where asylum seekers are held without charge and stand trial without lawyers. And, and that, that sort of tension is what I was talking about at St. Leo's last week. And I actually, uh, Matt... And I were joking that, you know, he only had to preach once, but I preached three times on Saturday night, twice on Sunday morning. Um, So by the time I was done, I was beat. And I actually probably needed to hear a little bit of preaching myself. Uh, So I went home and put on like a podcast, a lecture uh, by Brian Stevenson. If y'all are familiar who Brian Stevenson is, he's a lawyer and the founder of the the Equal Justice Initiative, which is, basically they come to the aid of those who are unjustly incarcerated. And I was going to try to just like tell you what he said, but instead I'm just going to play you a clip that's a couple minutes long 
Um, and just a warning that it might be a little bit difficult to listen to. So you want to go ahead and cue that clip up? I don't like it when we talk about the good old days of the early 20th century. I don't like it when people romanticize the era of, of the Confederacy, these Confederate monuments and memorials. I don't like them. My state is just polluted, saturated with these Confederate flags and these images of the Old South. And when I see them, I'm provoked. I was going to a prison. There was a truck outside this prison. And this truck was like a shrine uh, to the Old South. It had all of these flags and bumper stickers on it. It had the gun rack. And I, I saw a bumper sticker on this truck I hadn't seen before. One of the bumper stickers read, quote, If I'd known it was going to be like this, I'd have picked my own cotton. Hadn't seen that one before. I was just agitated by it. I walked past the truck, and I went up to the prison door, and inside the door was the, uh, a white guard who was standing there, and I said, hi, I'm here for a legal visit. And the first thing he said to me was, you're not a lawyer. I said, oh, yes, sir, I am a lawyer. He said, well, where's your bar card? I said, I don't need my bar card to come into this prison. He said, you're coming into my prison, you're going to have to show me your bar card. So to go back to my car and get my card that certified that I was a member of the bar, came back and showed it to him. I said, I want to see my client. He said, you're going to have to get in the bathroom. I'm going to give you a strip search before I let you in. I said, no, sir. Lawyers don't get strip search coming into this prison. He said, if you're coming into my prison, you're going to get in that bathroom. Couldn't find anybody to help me. And so I did. I went into the bathroom and subjected myself to this humiliating search. Came back out. I said, look, I want to see my client. I was trying to regain some dignity. He said, you've got to go back there and sign the book. I said, lawyers don't have to sign that book. Coming into my prison, you go sign that book. So I did. And finally, he took me over to the door where I could go see this client, and he unlocked the door. But before I walked in, he grabbed me by the arm, and he said, hey, let me ask you something. I said, what's that? He said, did you see that truck out there with those bumper stickers and flags? I said, yeah, I saw that truck. He said, I want you to know that that's my truck. It really angered me. And I went into the prison to wait for this young man I was about to see, somebody I'd never met before. And finally, the client came into the room, and I knew he was disabled, but I didn't know much more about him. And the client sat down, and the first thing the client said to me was, quote, did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? And I thought to myself, this is the strangest day I've had in a really long time. I said, no, I didn't bring you a chocolate milkshake. I'm your lawyer. I'm here to represent you. And I started asking him my questions, but I realized 10 minutes later he wasn't paying attention. He was still hung up on this milkshake, and I said, look, I'm sorry, I didn't know you wanted me to bring you a milkshake. The next time I come, if they let me, I'll bring you a chocolate milkshake. And he smiled and smiled and smiled. He was a very disabled person whose life had been ravaged by abuse and neglect and mental illness. He was in the foster care system. He was in 29 foster homes by the time he was 10 years old. He started showing evidence of schizophrenia at age 13. Uh, By 15, he was addicted to crack cocaine. At 17, he was a heroin addict. At 18, he was on the streets, roaming with no place to go. At 19, in the middle of a psychotic episode, he committed a horrific crime. He went to trial, and at no point during the trial did anyone ever use the word mental health, mental illness, mental disability. He had terrible representation. And one of the great challenges we have in this country is that we have a criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcome. And finally, it was time to go to court, uh, and I saw my client, but I also saw this guard I hadn't seen uh, since that first. All right, how we doing? Actually, let's do this. Can everyone take a big breath with me? Let's just all breathe in. Now let it out. Let's do that one more time. Breathe in. Now shake it out. So how do you feel after listening to that? Like, outraged? 
uh, energized, like you want to just burn it all down. That's, I know, uh, when I listened to it, that's how I felt. I was angry and motivated to like dismantle the racism in our criminal justice system. And, and that clip, uh, it gets us riled up. And, and one of the reasons, there are more reasons, but one of the reasons that I played it is because it actually, it probably makes us feel the way that the crowd felt when they heard Jesus preach about freeing the captives and liberating the oppressed. I mean, because that crowd would have been riled up, like really upset, really amped. Um, there's, Jesus is in his hometown of Galilee. And I, we, I don't know how much we talk about Galilee, but the Galileans are like a, uh, a raucous group of folks. There was, uh, there's a, actually a book that came out like 10 years ago uh, by Richard Horsley called Jesus and the Empire that looks all into the politics of what was happening at the time. And he says that, that Galilee was the most persistently rebellious area in the whole Roman Empire. And you know, the Roman Empire is like North Africa and the whole Mediterranean. And just in Galilee, there were four major rebellions around the time of Jesus. So like in 40 BCE, the Galileans rebelled for three years and like mounted these guerrilla attacks on Herod's supply lines. And then just a couple years before Jesus uh, was born, like when Mary and Joseph were still living in Galilee, the Galileans overthrew the royal fortress where they held all the weapons. They stole Roman weapons and started attacking Roman troops. I mean, so when we think Galileans, think like, I don't know, like the, uh, the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars, or um, like, will, there, this is for you, Leslie, William Wallace in Braveheart, yeah, we've got a Scott, um, or I don't know, for the millennials, like uh, Kevin McAllister defending his home from the wet bandits, something, something like that. Um, and, and the reason that they're so rebellious is they believed that God desired that they overthrow foreign oppressors. Like the whole Old Testament tells the story of God liberating people from foreign rule. And now it seems that Jesus has taken up the prophetic mantle, that he's leading them to once again overthrow these foreigners who are ruling over them. And so the crowd, and this is like right as we start our text, the crowd is lit. It, I think the Bible says they are amazed, but they were lit. They are ready to follow their hometown hero when something pretty dramatic happens. Uh, Jesus just starts going after the crowd. He tells a story about the time the prophet Elijah gave food to a foreigner and then let the Israelites starve. Then Jesus tells a second story about the time that same prophet Elijah healed a foreign warlord who was raiding towns and taking Israelites as slaves. Jesus basically looks at the crowd and says, oh, you thought I was going to liberate you? 
Oh, no. No, I'm going to help everyone but you. Turns out, crowd doesn't like this. They try to throw Jesus off a cliff. And, and I, I get it. I mean, this just feels cruel, like Jesus is provoking them. Why would Jesus do this? And <laughs> I was going to start by saying, I don't know, but I totally think I'm no, I know, and that would just be falsely humble. Um, I, I think Jesus needs the crowd to know he doesn't belong to them. Jesus is not just some awesome weapon of justice who is on their side doing their bidding. Jesus is letting them know that he doesn't pick sides. He's working for the redemption of everyone, of all people, not just the Galileans. And the crowd needs to see how Jesus is for everyone before they can see that that Jesus is for them. You know, there's a, excuse me, a band that I like. It's based out of Portland called Typhoon. And they've got a song about, like, sort of actually about loving your neighbor. And in it, uh, they've got this great line that says, you aren't special unless they are too. And I, I don't know if the band knows that they're channeling Jesus in Luke 4. Uh, but that's, like, exactly what Jesus is telling the crowd. Until you can see how much I love the foreigners... Until you understand that I love the people you hate, until then you can't see how much I love you. The good news isn't good news unless it's good news for everyone. And I love this, and I find it just endlessly frustrating. Like, I believe it in theory. I'm totally there, but I've got this problem. That, that I'm right. Like, like the other night, I, I saw this, this quote by Barry Goldwater. He's, a, he's an old Republican, and he's warning that evangelical preachers are going to get a hold of the Republican Party, and it'll be terrible because these preachers, they think they're following God, and therefore they can't compromise, they can't be wrong. And I read that, and started getting self-righteous until I had the thought, am I any different? Like, I probably think I'm acting in the name of God when I like wear my clerical collar to a protest on banning refugees. But you see, the difference is that I'm right? I, I don't know. Like, I don't want to give that up. Like, I do believe I'm acting uh, in the name of God when, when I work to release the captives and the oppressed. And so I don't want to give that up. But the problem is I get so riled up like the crowd that I just, it is beyond my imagination how God could be on their side too. And so here's where I'd actually like to return to Brian Stevenson. 
Because when I listened to that clip for the first time, because there had been a bit of stuff before it, and he was like, he was getting us going. We were feeling it. Uh, And I thought, you know what? He's trying to inspire me and motivate me to like, Fight like hell against injustice. And, and I thought he wanted me to be angry, righteous, anger. I thought he was doing one thing, but he was doing another. As the story continues, I, I saw he's actually teaching me that we cannot do the work of justice if we believe Jesus takes sides. And, and we, you can go ahead and play the second half of that clip now. And finally, it was time to go to court. Uh, and I saw my client, but I also saw this guard I hadn't seen uh, since that first encounter. And I went up to my client. I always had to tell him I couldn't bring him a milkshake. That was the way we started every conversation. But he seemed fine. And for three days, we put on our evidence. We had our experts testifying and our witnesses testifying. I felt good about the case at the end of the hearing. And about three weeks later, I decided to go back to the prison to see the client. And when I got to the prison... There was the truck, and I saw this truck in the parking lot, and I almost decided to just come back another day. But when I was a little boy, the civil rights people used to sing, don't let nobody turn you around, and I felt like I couldn't do that. And so I walked past this truck, and I went up to the, to the prison door, and there, sure enough, was the guard standing there. And I said, hi, I'm here for a legal visit. He said, hello, Mr. Stevenson, how are you? Through me. I said, I've got my bar card. He said, oh, I don't need to see that. So I'm going to go in the bathroom for your search. He said, Mr. Stevenson, we're not going to do that. I said, well, I'll go over here and sign the book. He said, Mr. Stevenson, I saw you coming, and I signed you in. Completely threw me. I said, well, thank you. I said, I guess I'll see my client. He said, yes, sir. And he took me over to the door, and I watched him try to unlock the door. And his hands were shaking. And he couldn't get the key in the door, and he was getting more and more unsteady. And finally, he got the key in there, and he unlocked the door. And he opened the door slowly, but he looked at me, and he said, Mr. Stevenson, I want to say something to you. And I'll never forget it. He looked at me, and he says, I want you to know that I was in that courtroom, and I was listening. And he said, I want you to know that I think what you're doing is a good thing. Completely blew me away. He says, I, I grew up in the foster care system, too. He says, I've been a really angry person all my life. But I listened, and I think maybe your client had it worse than I do. And I just want you to know, I think what you're doing is a good thing. And can I please shake your hand? Would have never guessed it. Never guessed it. And I shook his hand. I said, I, I, I want to tell you how much it means to me that you did that. It really, I appreciate it a lot. And I turned to go see my client. And the man grabbed me by the arm. He said, wait, wait, wait. I've got to tell you something else. I said, what's that? He said, well, I just want you to know I did something on the way back from the courthouse to the prison. I said, what'd you do? He says, well, uh, I took an exit and I took your client to a Wendy's and I bought him a chocolate milkshake. (laughs) It's It's a really silly story, but it speaks to me about our need to stay hopeful. No one is beyond recovery. No one is beyond redemption. I cannot argue for the lives of my condemned clients without arguing for the people who are sometimes so filled with hate and corruption that they manifest it in violence and lethal misjudgment and bigotry. We have got to be hopeful. No one is beyond redemption. I can't argue for the lives of my condemned clients without arguing for the people filled with hate and corruption. When I heard him say that, I realized that whole time that I was listening to this story, 
I'd been longing for the liberation of this man who uh, had committed a heinous crime and not considered the liberation of the man who oppressed him. Like, I wanted the, the racist prison guard to get called out by name and be fired. I was, I was totally acting like the crowd. I, I failed to see that my liberation is bound up in the liberation of the people I so instinctively demonize. And I know it's not easy to, to look at an oppressor and long for their liberation. I, I know it's hard to, to believe they're doing the best they can. I know it's hard to offer grace and love to those who mistreat us. And, and honestly, as a, a straight white guy who's faced little, if any, oppression, it seems audacious that I even suggest it. But I think that's what Jesus is suggesting. Jesus, who, you know, Jesus will end up being poor and without housing, he'll be wrongly arrested, held captive, and killed. Yet Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to love his enemies. And, and, you know, this is more than just like a tactic to win over racist prison guards. This really is about uh, our liberation. I mean, in part from our liberation from the anger that can overwhelm us. Was it the, the Buddha who said or that, that holding on to anger is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies? We get so angry that we throw away the one thing that could save us. The, the truth that the image of God lies deep within every person with, with no exceptions. And, and if we lose sight of the image of God in the other, we, we throw Christ off a cliff. But if we can start with the belief that that everyone is a beautiful child of God, I think we'll be just a little bit more compassionate, more empathetic, more humble. And when we face injustice, we can respond with wonder and with hope. The, The quest for justice... Uh, must be, it has to be encompassed in love and hope because our liberation is bound up in the liberation of those we oppose. And, you know, we see this just throughout the life of Jesus. When Jesus sat with his disciples on uh, the night before he was arrested, he sat with, you know, the disciples that misunderstood him, with the ones who'd followed him poorly, with the ones who'd flee, with the ones who would deny ever knowing him, with the one who would betray him. He sat with them, with, with all of them. He looked at all of them, and breaking the bread, 
he said to each and every one, both his friend and his enemy, this is my body given for all of you. Amen.